0: Okay, we are returning to our study on Christ in the Old Testament. And uh, Lord willing, we have one final study in this first section or this first segment of our study. What we've identified in our study so far is that uh, even though he's not specifically mentioned by the name that we're most familiar with in the New Testament, um, the Lord Jesus was actually present. Throughout the Old Testament time period, throughout God's dealings with His people in the Old Testament, and He's certainly present throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And uh, what we've been doing is we've been dividing up our study into three segments. This is finishing the first of those three segments. So we're looking at Old Testament prophecies of Christ. Then in our study ahead of us, which we won't get to tonight, we'll look at Old Testament Christophanies, which are the actual appearances of Christ throughout various key moments and events in Old Covenant history. And then our final section, uh, which will probably be the longest of our three sections in terms of our studies, uh, we're, we'll look at various types and shadows of Christ, various people, places, events, and things that... that. Um, symbolize christ and point forward to him in unexpected and unusual ways so um in our study of the prophecies of christ we've done several already we've covered a bunch of prophecies we've looked at uh, christ's nature in prophecy we've looked at his character We looked in our most recent study at prophecies about the birth of Christ, the circumstances of his entry into the world, and then also we finished with prophecies describing the ministry of the Messiah, what his public ministry uh, to Israel and to the Gentiles also would look like. And then that leaves us for our study tonight, uh, two of the most important sections or segments of, of Old Testament prophecy study, and those are Prophecies of the cross and prophecies of the resurrection. Uh, in terms of of uh, the number of prophecies we're going to be looking at, I, I'm again as we did two weeks ago. I'm going to be covering more passages that I ordinarily than I ordinarily would in any one study. So we'll be going fairly quickly through these. I'll of course give you a brief comment at least on each one of these prophecies, and then I will link each one of these Old Testament prophecies to a specific New Testament passage that demonstrates the fulfillment of those prophecies. And uh, what we're going to do for tonight's study is look at three sections. First, we'll look at prophecies of the circumstances directly leading up to the cross, all of the events just before Jesus was crucified, but are connected to the cross. Then prophecies of the circumstances of his crucifixion and his death. And then finally, prophecies of his resurrection. What's interesting is that there are a number of prophecies concerning the circumstances leading up to the cross, a number of prophecies of the circumstance of the sacrifice of the Lord on the cross, and then very few, really, we're only going to look at the three most important prophecies of the resurrection, and I'll comment when we get to that section as to why, in my perspective or my belief, There are only three main prophecies of the resurrection of Christ found in the Old Testament uh, compared to the larger number uh, connected to the cross. But let's just jump right into prophecies of the circumstances leading up to the cross. The first we've studied in great detail when we went through the Gospel of Matthew together. It's found in Psalm 31. And oh, I should say this as you're turning to Psalm 31. For all of these prophecies, uh, the, the uh, ones that I've chosen are what I would call the most important ones. It doesn't mean that the ones we're not going to cover are unimportant. It's just these are the, the primary. If, if we were to only have time to cover a certain number of prophecies, these are the ones that we should be sure to cover. But there are many others than the ones that we're looking at that are found in Old Testament prophecy study as well. And uh, for all of these prophecies, I just want to remind you about these the really function in a special way in God's word. Uh, all of God's word is significant. All of God's word is important. All of God's word is, is uh, meant to speak to our hearts and, and change our minds and change our perspectives and change our lives ultimately. But Bible prophecy functions in a very important way. And I'm talking about the Old Testament prophecies in particular because there remain some New Testament prophecies that have been declared by the Lord and by the apostles, which have not yet been fulfilled. And the question is, how much confidence can you place in a prophecy that someone has made at some ancient time in history in the writing of the New Testament letters that has not yet been fulfilled? And the answer to that is for us, who are, are careful students of God's word, you can place, if if you're going to follow my example, you can place 100% confidence in the yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecies that um, are still ahead of us, in a sense, in God's agenda in redemptive history. And the reason for that is, of course, the absolute certainty that we have in the prophecies that have been fulfilled. The, um, The testimony in those fulfilled prophecies of the divine inspiration of scripture every time i do a a study of old testament bible prophecies it only serves to strengthen my confidence in the divine inspiration the authority and the integrity of the scriptures meaning that there is no other book i mean literally no other book that's ever been written in all of human history that has a list like this of predictions you know, there are some that would say, well, what about Nostradamus? And, you know, there have been various other uh, so-called, what I would call secular prophets, meaning people that claim to have some uh, knowledge of future events, and they've made some kind of pronunciation or prognostication of the future, and someone wrote it down or recorded it. Uh, The problem with all of those, I don't know if you've ever actually read the prophecies of Nostradamus, but they're so vague that they could, they could be applied to any particular era of history. And you could look at the prophecy and say, okay, well, that's happening today because it's just in such generalization and in such vague terms that uh, you, can kind of, you can kind of massage it and make it fit any of the circumstances that are currently happening in the world. Bible prophecies are not like that. They're exceptionally detailed. They're exceptionally specific. We're going to be going through a list of those connected to the cross and the resurrection that demonstrate, uh, as I described in the very first study we did in, in prophecy a few weeks ago, the virtual mathematical impossibility of these things all being fulfilled in a single life like they are actually fulfilled in Christ. Unless God was really in charge of all of history, and unless He was sovereignly dovetailing those events to the fulfillment in the events of the life of His Son. And remember, these prophecies were not just given by a single individual, they were spoken by various prophets over a long era of Old Covenant and Old Testament history. They were collected in the various books of the Old Testament, and then all found their fulfillment in the events and circumstances of the life and death and then resurrection of christ so this very first one is in psalm 31 and we'll read just verse 13 and the psalmist writes this and remember this uh, this applies to all the prophecies as well Uh, the the person that's writing the prophecy here it's a psalm of david King David is writing this song of worship under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He may or may not have been thinking about Christ in the future when he wrote these words. He most likely was thinking about his own life and his own circumstances, but by the sovereignty of God, they amazingly and interestingly not just describe what he was actually experiencing, but what the son of David, by messianic prophecy, would one day experience. So verse 13, for I hear the whisperings of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Now, it should be fairly easy for us to understand how that might have applied to King David's life. You remember there was one point where his own son, Absalom, conspired to steal the kingdom from David, and he did so with the help of many in the royal court at that time. And David here is recognizing this plot, which was a plot to actually murder King David so that Absalom could take the throne. And of course, the Lord had to. Um, the Lord had to sovereignly protect King David and keep him alive through that circumstance. But this most definitely points to an important element in the life of the Messiah, which was a future conspiracy that would take place among the leaders of New Covenant or New Testament time uh, during the era of the life of Jesus himself, Israel, and the leaders of Israel who we saw in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27 verse 1, I won't read the passage, we're familiar with it, but those leaders gathered together and they did so in secret, they did so in private, and they conspired to have Jesus murdered. Next one, also in the book of Psalms. Let's look at Psalm chapter 41. And we'll read verse 9. What I find interesting about this section we're looking at, which are prophecies of the circumstances leading up to the cross, is that the Lord went way out of his way, so to speak, to give us even more detail than I would expect about the events leading up to the sacrifice of his son. I would have expected that the Lord, knowing that his son needed to sacrifice his life on the cross, would have given us prophecies about his chosen one, the Messiah, his son, will sacrifice himself. He will die on a cross. And we have passages like that, of course, uh, Old Testament prophecies like that. But this kind of passage here in uh, Psalm 31 that we just read and Psalm 41 that we're about to read gives us all kinds of details of just small details leading up to those events That as you begin to string these details together, it's almost like uh, the best example I could give or analogy I could give would be like stringing pearls on a string so that any one pearl in isolation is a thing of beauty, but when you have a whole string of pearls uh, perfectly strung together and you see how one links to the other and connects to the other and enhances the beauty of the other, suddenly the the totality of all of the prophecies in relationship to each other begin to really uh, reveal the awesomeness of God's work during these events. So Psalm 41, and we'll look just at verse 9, says this, and this is also a Psalm of David. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now I had mentioned that um, David King David, who wrote these words and was describing events in his personal life circumstances as king, um, King David was betrayed by his son Absalom, but beyond that one of his trusted counselors uh, left David's side and attached himself in a political maneuver to his son Absalom and so a man that was a close friend of David's and a trusted friend of David in whom David trusted he went to for counsel that man left his side that man betrayed him and that man ultimately attempted with Absalom to stab David in the back so to speak but clearly this is pointing forward to what event in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus and of course The New Testament writers saw this as being fulfilled in the circumstances of the betrayal of Judas, one of the 12 closest friends and closest ministry associates of the Lord Jesus. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, and of course Judas did so not just during the course of the three years of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus, but most importantly one final time ate bread with jesus at what we know to be the last supper supper when the lord jesus in a in a detail highlighted in the gospels actually took some of the the flat bread the unleavened bread that was eaten at the meal and dipped it in in this dipping sauce and handed it specifically to judas and as judas took it and and ate it then jesus said to him essentially what you're going to do it's time for you to go do it and uh, knowing full well what Judas had planned and Judas gets up and leaves the room at that point and goes to the priests in order to to carry out the conspiracy to arrest Jesus and take him to trial so we f- we find the fulfillment of this passage described in the gospel of John chapter 13 verse 18 all right our next one is really a set of 3 And they're all in one passage in the prophecy of Zechariah. So this is among the minor prophets. If you could find your way there. And it's just after Zephaniah and just before Malachi. So second to last Old Testament prophet. And we'll be in Zechariah chapter 11. I'll read two verses and we're going to see three important details in regards to the circumstances leading up to the cross of Christ that are highlighted in this uh, passage by Zechariah. Chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now I won't take time as I did in the first two passages we looked at For each one of these that are ahead of us, or else I'll never get through our list tonight, I won't take time to set each one of these Old Testament prophecies in the specific context that they actually first occurred in, but I want you to see from the example that we saw in King David's life that each one of these does have an original context of what the prophet was experiencing and what he was writing about in his perspective, but then the Lord is at work, inspiring by his spirit at an even deeper level, a more far-reaching, far-ranging level, which is pointing forward to the events of the, the life of his son. So let's look at, let's actually turn to these three now, and I'll highlight which of the three elements from Zechariah's prophecy are, are, are fulfilled. The first is found in Matthew 26. And we'll read one verse. Well, I'll go ahead and read two verses, uh, verses 14 and 15, just to set the context. And this is Matthew's brief description of the betrayal by Judas of the Lord Jesus. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him. 30 pieces of silver. So the first detail that that Zechariah's prophecy highlights is the actual price of the betrayal of the Lord Jesus specified in the Zechariah prophecy as exactly 30 pieces of silver. And what's interesting here is that Judas went to the chief priest, having already arranged that this was going to happen, but when he arrived there that night in order to carry out the event, the actual betrayal, and to ultimately lead the soldiers, the temple soldiers, to the Garden of Gethsemane where they could arrest Jesus, Judas didn't demand 30 pieces of silver. He said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And it was the choice of the chief priest's to pay him 30 pieces of silver. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me about this is that tells us something about the, the spiritual condition of the chief priests. Chief priests among all the, the, the spiritual leaders of Israel should have been the most biblically equipped of all. The chief priests are the the ones that are, in a sense, the most advanced, the most mature, the most accomplished, even among the rest of the priests that served in God's temple. They're the authority figures over the rest of the Levitical priesthood. They should have been most familiar with the scriptures. So, number one, it tells us that they had no idea that the Zechariah prophecy about 30 pieces of silver was actually being fulfilled in what they offered to pay to Judas that night when they should have been aware. And they of course certainly had literally zero clue that they were the ones that were fulfilling this prophecy by that offer of this money to betray him. So 30 pieces of silver. You can't get any more specific and detailed than that. Second, let's turn one chapter deeper into Matthew and these are all three of these New Testament passages are connected to the one Zechariah passage so we're in Matthew 27 now and I'll read verse starting in verse 3 then when Judas his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned he changed his mind Now, now he doesn't change his mind in the sense that he's truly repentant for what he's done to betray the lord he's just dismayed that he has set events in motion that are not turning out the way he anticipated so he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying i have sinned by betraying innocent blood they said what is that to us see to it yourself verse 5 is where we find the fulfillment of the second Zechariah detail. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. The Zechariah passage tells us specifically that the the 30 pieces of silver were thrown down in the temple. This is fulfilled exactly as uh, Zechariah had described. And then the third detail, the third element is highlighted also in Matthew 27, but let's start reading from verse 6 now. So Judas has betrayed the Lord. He now has a change of mind about what he's done, and he returns the betrayal money, and he throws it down in the temple. And at this point, verse 6 picks up, but the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, "'It is not lawful to put them into the treasury.' since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And so what we have here is this really interesting um, triple fulfillment in that there is a description in the Zechariah prophecy of the amount of the betrayal money there's the description of what will happen to the betrayal money which is it's going to be thrown down in the temple but not just thrown down in the temple to return to the temple treasury the chief priests recognize that we're not able to add that money to the temple treasury this is their great inconsistency in their own heart's perspective because here they are actually conspiring to murder Jesus but they're so conscientious to not break God's law by adding blood money to the temple treasury that they decide to take that money and then turn around and in the name of Judas purchase a field for Judas and others like him to be buried, which becomes the potter's field that they actually purchase. And of course, the potter's field is specifically mentioned in the Zechariah prophecy. All right, next one. This is in uh, what should be for us very familiar territory. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 53. Um, if you were to say what's the most well-known and, and likely the most important prophecy, Old Covenant prophecy of Christ, uh, you could certainly make a case that the entirety of Isaiah chapter 53 uh, would fit that description Uh, We could read the entire chapter and we'll come back to it in our next section. But there are two points, not just about the death of Christ, but the circumstances leading to his death that I want to highlight from Isaiah 53. The first one is found in verse 3. It describes he was, and this is the Messiah being described here. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not so the the key points that i want to highlight is and this word is used twice as a double emphasis the messiah would be a despised man doesn't tell us specifically who he would be despised by but just seeing this in fulfillment connected to messianic prophecy is somewhat of a problem for um, those who study Old Testament scriptures but don't see Christ as a possible fulfillment of those passages because messianic anticipation in Israel was that when the Messiah would arrive and this is still true to this day to those among the, the, um, the descendants of the Jews that are still anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, they are convinced, and they were in this day, and they were in the days of Jesus, that when the Messiah arrived, the people of God would recognize him, the people of God would embrace him, the people of God would love him, the people of God would follow him and honor him. Here, clearly, he's rather than being embraced and honored, he's despised and rejected. And then, of course, we have to discern and draw conclusions as to who was it that was despising him and who was it that was rejecting him. So uh, Matthew chapter 27, jump back over there for just a quick moment. Keep your place in Isaiah 53 if you would, though. Matthew 27, and now we're looking at verses 22 and 23. This is during the trial of the Lord Jesus. And this isn't the only time the despised and rejected prophecy was fulfilled, but it's the the ultimate and final fulfillment of that prophecy. Pilate said to them, and he's speaking, of course, here to the crowd that was gathered, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Now, Pilate, no doubt, was speaking in Greek and uh, used the uh, Greek word Christos. But um, that word, of course, would parallel and um, connect directly to the Hebrew word Messiah for Messiah. So he's asking essentially what he's asking the crowd, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? They all said, this is the entire crowd gathered, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and of course, the they that are found in in verse twenty two are the same they that uh, came out in droves and um, praised him and welcomed him and sang praises to him just one week before this on what we call Palm Sunday, the triumphant triumphant entry, the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, starting. The, what we call the Passion Week. But here they are now uh, on the day of his trial crying out. They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? Implying that the one who has heard the case and heard the evidence that's been presented against him has rightly discerned, Pilate rightly discerned, that he had done no evil. There was no charge that had been brought against him that was proven and therefore was not guilty, therefore should have been released as he truly was innocent. But because of the Lord's hidden, at this point, purpose for him to be uh, sacrificed for our sins, it was required that he was actually crucified. And so when he asked the crowd the question, what evil has he done? They shouted all the more, not answering his question directly, but simply despising him and rejecting him and they shout let him a second time let him be crucified all right uh next prophecy detail also in isaiah 53 we're going to jump down to verse 7 isaiah 53 7 he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter of and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, this is a, 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 a well-familiar Old Testament prophecy of Messiah. Um, I'm sure you've read it before. I'm sure you're, you're understanding its context. But I, I just want to point out uh, the nuance of how prophecy needs to be read and then applied to the actual events that fulfill it. Um, this is describing the Messiah as someone who is silent, someone who does not open his mouth. Um, if we were to take that and, and apply it in a what I would call a hyper-literal way and try to make that fit all of the circumstances of the life of the Lord Jesus, that wouldn't fit, of course, because what's happened for the three years immediately prior to what this is describing is that Jesus is just had three years of public teaching ministry where he preached the kingdom of God and he taught his disciples the principles of God's kingdom and his saving purpose for them, not at all being silent during those three years. But at the moment of his affliction leading to his saving sacrifice, at the moment that he then became like a lamb led to slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers, the shearers here are those that are, that are taking advantage, so to speak, of the sheep and him being in the role of the sheep. At the moment of his trial, at the moment where his life is on the line, in that moment, while he had been um, quick to open his mouth and proclaim the truths of God's word and all that needed to be revealed by him, at this moment he closes his mouth and he speaks not a single word and of course this is fulfilled for us in um, matthew 27 jumping back over there and i'll read from verse 11 now jesus stood before the governor that governor's pontius pilate the roman governor and the governor asked him are you the king of the jews Jesus said, You have said so. But so he's willing to speak even in this moment of his trial to Pilate, because Pilate is not conspiratorially trying to execute Jesus. Pilate is just trying to get at the truth of the circumstance. But then the scene shifts, verse 12, but when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, The chief priests and the elders were the ones that did conspire to murder the Lord Jesus. They they were wicked men. They were evil in their hearts, and they they were acting on their evil conspiracy. And so when the chief priests and the elders accused him, and of course their accusations were false accusations, and they even paid false witnesses to testify against him, in that circumstance, it says in verse 12, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. And so the the Isaiah 53, open not his mouth, prophecy was fulfilled. Uh, Next one, Psalm 31. We, we read one from Psalm 31 earlier, and I'm, I, I split these two because uh, there's a, a certain sequence of these events, so to speak, in their fulfillment. Psalm 31, and we'll look at verse 11. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. Now, this is one of those messianic prophecies that doesn't get as much attention as some of the others, but it is highlighted in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. And what is being described prophetically is the Lord Jesus being abandoned by his closest associates at the moment when he should have been able to expect their greatest expression of loyalty. We'll read from Verse 48, and the circumstance here is the Garden of Gethsemane. As Judas has led the temple soldiers out to arrest Jesus and lead him away to trial, Jesus said to them, Have you come out against as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scripture be fulfilled. Verse 50, and they all left him and fled. The all here is not the temple uh, guards that came to arrest him, but his own disciples in this critical moment left him and fled for th- their own personal safety, uh, taking no consideration in the most critical moment of uh, what would happen to the Lord Jesus. All let right, right, uh, we've got one more passage for... The circumstances leading up to the cross, we're back to Isaiah, but this time an earlier chapter, chapter 50, in a single verse. Isaiah 50, verse 6, and we have more than one detail of the circumstances that are now connected to the trial of the Lord Jesus that are being described in advance. And, and all of these Isaiah prophecies, uh, all of the Old Testament prophecies, of course, are amazing in how they're fulfilled in the circumstances of the life of the Lord Jesus, the life and death of the Lord Jesus. But um, the Isaiah ones stand out even more to me because they're, they're written so early. Um, 700 years Isaiah prophesied before the actual events that fulfilled them and each one of these prophecies just very directly connecting to the actual events of the Lord Jesus. I mean, put it in the context of like how long the United States of America has been in existence. You know, we're we're over 200 years now, 1776 to 2022. So let's just be generous and say 250 years. It's not even, I don't think, quite that that long yet, is it? We're getting close. But the point being that 250 years compared to 700 years and just thinking back 700 years I mean it's like it's we're back in the year 1300 where the prophecies of events that are happening today would have to be spoken to have that same kind of time gap so Isaiah 50 verse 6 and this is Isaiah actually speaking as if he's in the role of the messiah I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So, then, of course, in Matthew 26, during the circumstances of the trial of the Lord Jesus, verse 67. this is uh, the soldiers that were in charge of him during this time period there were some breaks where he wasn't being directly uh, interrogated by either Pilate or King Herod Uh, he was being he was being bounced back and forth between those two authority figures but in between those he was under the charge of the soldiers and at this point um, they uh, it's describing one of the ways in which they mistreated him Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. They're not saying it out of faith. They're saying it out of mockery, of course. Who is it that struck you? So here, um, there's two things that Isaiah highlighted, which is that uh, he would not turn away his face from being mistreated. And um, Isaiah specifies that, among the mistreatments that he would endure would be, um, striking and spinning. And he endured both of those as well as giving his back, which this passage, I should have linked another passage, but, uh, giving his back to those who strike. Of course, Jesus was, uh, flogged, um, by the Roman soldiers under, um, Pilate's order at the very end of his trial process. All right. So that, um, that ends our group of prophecies of the circumstances leading up to the cross. Let's look at the prophecies of the actual experience of the cross itself. The first and, and and possibly most well, you know, you can you can make a case and say the Isaiah 53 passage, but also Psalm 22 of all the messianic psalms. And you know the messianic psalms play an important role among all of the psalms. They are the psalms, the songs the inspired worship songs that are that are highlighting various elements of the Messiah, his life, his ministry, his person, his nature, his character, all of those things are highlighted in the Messianic Psalms. But even among the Messianic Psalms, one of them stands out because, and that is Psalm 22, that is because Psalm 22 is a Messianic Psalm of the death of the Messiah. Though it was i want to be clear about this those that studied the old testament scriptures in old testament times did not understand that psalm 22 was a messianic psalm describing the death of the messiah because they did not believe and understand that the messiah would have to suffer they saw of course as we've as we've studied many times before that the messiah would be a he would be a conquering figure a a a, a great and triumphant king that would never experience the kind of indignities that are described in great detail in Psalm 22. We're going to look at more than one passage in Psalm 22. I'm going to just link all of these together because we're right there and it'll it'll help us um, in terms of just covering all of these passages. The first one I want to look at though, and I'm looking at these in um, in order of how they actually then were fulfilled in the cross experience of the Lord Jesus. The first one, we're going to jump down to verse 16. And in verse 16, it says, and this is all King David describing again his own experiences, not in literal sense, but his experiences in terms of of the sufferings that he endured as part of fulfilling the lord's purpose for his life as king but ultimately in a way that david could not have anticipated pointing forward to the circumstances of christ on the cross verse 16 for dogs encompass me Um, was that literally fulfilled there may have been dogs present at the foot of the cross Um, wild dogs were common outside of the city gates and the crucifixion took place outside of the city gates But more likely, this is a literal description of actual dogs, but dogs in the covenantal sense of symbolic description. In uh, Old Covenant Israel, Old Testament Israel, uh, dogs was a special insult that Israelites used to describe those who were outside of covenant relationship with the Lord. So they commonly referred to Gentiles as dogs. It was an insulting term. Um, So if dogs encompass the Lord on the cross, does that mean that he was surrounded by Gentiles on that day? The answer is yes, literally and technically, because he was surrounded by Roman soldiers who were Gentiles, and the Israelites viewed them as dogs. But really how it played out and how it was fulfilled is those that claimed to have a covenant relationship with the Lord, but who actually did not. Those that should have welcomed recognized and embraced the Messiah, but actually despised him and rejected him and called for his crucifixion. Those were the true dogs that surrounded him that day. So dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me, and then this detail, they have pierced my hands and feet. Now David is probably just describing kind of an emotional, uh, description of how he feels under the extreme circumstances that he was enduring but he's actually describing in literal detail what the lord jesus would have to endure of course in his crucifixion and uh for those i won't turn to it because this one is obvious we don't need to make a case about it or a big explanation but if you want a link for your notes luke 24 verses 39 and 40 Uh, Detail for us, of course, that when Jesus was crucified, they nailed both his hands and his feet to the cross. Now, the next one in Psalm 22, very first verse, one of the most famous uh, statements of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Um, I've never personally done this study in terms of teaching. Uh, I I'd like to do it someday, but um, there have been others that have uh, written about this and and preached about this, and that is that there were seven specific statements that the Lord Jesus made while he was hanging on the cross, and this is uh, the first of those statements, and it's highlighted for us in Psalm 22, and it's not accidental or coincidental, of course, that the Lord Jesus spoke these words while he was hanging on the cross and was literally quoting Psalm 22. Now, Some of these prophecies, like this one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now, the portion, of course, that the Lord Jesus quoted was just the very first line in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he quoted it in Aramaic and. it uh, it's the phrase Eloi Eloi Lama Sabachthani and uh, it is translated here by the words that we're so familiar with my God my God why have you forsaken me so what I want you to notice is this is a prophecy that the Lord Jesus purposefully and intentionally fulfilled meaning he knew that David was speaking these words ultimately about him describing his experience on the cross and not just these words but really all of the psalm all of psalm 22 is a detailed description of his experience on the cross and he intentionally spoke these words now does that make the words and their connection to him less significant in their fulfillment for instance if i say the words today my god my god why have you forsaken me I've just said them out loud. Does that mean that I fulfilled Bible prophecy in my own life experience? The answer is, of course not. The words clearly are not describing me. They cannot be appropriated by me. They do not apply to me. And certainly not just the first line of the psalm, but as you read through the rest of the psalm in all of its detail, none of those circumstances that are described apply to the circumstances of my life. But the Lord Jesus intentionally spoke the words as a what we would call a holy hint for our sake to help us to see the connections that we might have missed otherwise and I would put this in the same category as the events in Luke chapter 24 where the Lord was in one of his resurrection appearances was walking on the road to to Emmaus with two of his disciples and then opened their perspectives to understand how the events of his crucifixion connected to Old Testament prophecy and then later in the same chapter he appears to the 11 surviving apostles and he opens their minds to understand how all of the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah were actually fulfilled in him and so this line is for our benefit that we can see those connections and then in terms of our um, our New Testament fulfillment um, I'll just give you for your notes, Matthew 27:46, where Jesus actually speaks the exact words, "Why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, next one, verse 18, Psalm 22 verse 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is, to me, I'm going to link it to John chapter 19, verses 23 and 24. And I won't have time to go back and forth and and read each one of the New Testament fulfillments just because I'm already running short on time and I want to get through the list. But this is one of the most amazing ones to me. Small details, but super important. Two things that are highlighted in in verse 18. Number one, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So one is Jesus was wearing more than one item of clothing. He was wearing sandals. He was wearing an inner garment. He was wearing an outer garment. He was wearing a belt that was common in those days. There were various items that he would wear, just like every other Israelite would wear. Those items were divvied up among the crucifixion detail. They were One of the the perks of being on a crucifixion detail is you got to take the personal possessions of the person that you were crucifying because they had no need of them any longer as they were being executed. But for one item of the clothing of the Lord Jesus, they saw it had special value. And do you remember what the detail was of that that garment that gave it special value? It It was a seamless garment woven from one single piece of cloth, of one single piece of fabric and because of that they didn't want to tear it into pieces and divide it in the detail they recognized one of us should take it but then who's going to take it among this group of soldiers we all want it and so what they did of course as it's described in the john pat or excuse me i think i gave you um yeah john 19 verses 23 and 24 is they didn't just divide his garments, but they sat down and gambled. They cast lots to see what which one soldier would take that one special garment that he was wearing. All right, next one is also in Psalm 22. Look at verse 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. This is very highly poetic language describing just how uh, dehydrated um, Jesus became in his crucifixion experience. He had been uh, arrested in the middle of the night, the previous night, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He spent all night long under, um, under the watch of the soldiers that had arrested him. He was bounced back and forth between Uh, Pilate and um, King Herod he was then uh, abused by the soldiers and then he was he was uh, by uh, Pilate's order he was uh, whipped uh, and in that there was uh, great blood loss so at this point in the actual crucifixion experience he was exceptionally dehydrated and John chapter 19 verse 28 points to this um psalm twenty two fifteen, prophecy and describes the experience of the lord jesus in which he cried out that i thirst and then in his experience of crying out about his thirst um there is of course a response but we'll we'll save that for the next one we have one last one in psalm 22 look now at verses seven and eight all who see me mock me they make mouths at me they wag their heads and then this is trust. This is um, quoting those that are mocking the Messiah in this moment. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is a mocking statement, like, oh, okay, so this guy says he trusts in the Lord, he's got a special relationship with the Lord, the Lord watches over him, the Lord cares for him. Let's see if the Lord intervenes. We're going to do something to him that it's going to make it impossible for the Lord to intervene. And of course, that uh, being the the crucifixion event itself. And so in that, um, we see a fulfillment in Matthew 27, verses 42 and 47, in which he was mocked by the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem and specifically by the religious leaders that passed by his crucifixion site. And they actually spoke out and quoted this exact verse as they mocked him. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Whether they were intentionally thinking that they were quoting this passage or not, they absolutely in detail fulfilled this exact passage. And Matthew highlights that for us, just just showing how Uh, to what great extent the Lord's sovereignty was involved in the fulfillment of these events. All right, um, Psalm 69, verse 21. He cried out, I'm thirsty because he was so dehydrated. Psalm 69, verse 21 says this. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. So what was the response of the Roman soldiers when Jesus cried out, I thirst? In John chapter 19 verses 29 and 30, we see the Roman soldiers responded by dipping a sponge on the end of a stick in a sour wine and lifting it up to the Lord Jesus for him to quench his thirst just prior to. To his death. Uh, next one, and I'll just rather than reading these two because there's two of them, uh, I'll give you the summary. Uh, ex, they're essentially pointing to the same event. One functions more as a prophecy; the other is a type, that, a type that can function as a prophecy as well. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, which is the events of uh, what we call the night of the Passover and what was to be done with the Passover lamb. And then uh, Psalm 34, verse 20, which states that there would be for the Messiah an experience in his suffering of no broken bones. And then uh, in John 19, verses 31 through 36, uh, we have that detail of after Jesus actually died, a Roman soldier came along and it was normal practice to break the legs of crucified uh, prisoners those that had already been crucified to ensure that their their death was was certain but in this case jesus had already died and so instead of breaking his legs they pierced his side psalm 31 verse 5 the messiah's uh words are prophesied here on the cross this is another of the seven sayings of the lord jesus on the cross this one the Messiah is quoted as saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. And of course, Luke quotes those words that the Lord Jesus spoke as his final words in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Then two more in the prophecies of the cross. Isaiah 53, verse 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. And we'll link that to Luke 22 verse 37, which simply identifies for us, of course, that Jesus was crucified between two criminals, meaning he was grouped with criminals, criminal transgressors of God's law, though he himself was innocent of any violation of God's law. And then the final one from Isaiah 53 verse 9, uh, two details in a single prophecy, he would the Messiah would make his grave with the wicked, and a rich man would be involved in some mysterious way with his burial circumstance and matthew twenty seven verses fifty seven through sixty detail for us that um, while Jesus did die in a group of the wicked, nevertheless, there was a special exemption that was allowed. By Pontius Pilate because of the uh, appeal of one rich man in the New Testament events and he went and appealed that he could bury the body of Jesus rather than having him just uh, lumped into the criminal grave and so he died with the wicked but he was buried in a rich man's tomb all right, that leaves us only the last three, which are the prophecies of the resurrection. I mentioned earlier, it's interesting to me that there's only three three main prophecies of the resurrection of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, in the book of Acts that we're currently studying, the resurrection is in greater focus than the crucifixion. And yet in Bible prophecy, the crucifixion is in greater focus than the resurrection. And so what are we to make of that? Um uh, There's no passage that explains why there are only three resurrection prophecies. I'll just give you my own thoughts and my own considerations about it. The resurrection is is really like if God is telling a story in the life circumstances of of his son, the Messiah, um, like every great story, there's a twist in the story. And in God's story of his son, it's the ultimate twist. And that is the one that that is innocent and undeserving of execution is actually executed so that's a twist and then of course he can't be left in the grave he must be raised from the dead because he doesn't he never deserved to die to begin with and so God does an exceptional thing in the circumstances of his son and he raises him from the dead but really all of that is new covenant reality that is only hinted at in three main places in the Old Testament. And I think in doing that, God is giving us the minimum number of testimonies of the truth of the coming resurrection. I say minimum number because the law required two or three testimonies, two or three witnesses in order for any great truth to be established. And so he provides that in these three prophecies, but he doesn't give us too much detail in advance preserving the uh, impact of the twist when it actually happens in the circumstances of his son so these three passages of the the resurrection prophecies are found in psalm 16 verses 9 through 11 i won't have to go into detail because we're going to be studying this in great detail later in acts chapter 2 and we're just entering acts chapter 2 in our sunday studies but i'll link it to acts 2 29 through 32 and the main focus of the of the resurrection prophecy in psalm 16 is that the body of the messiah he will die but the body of the messiah will not see decay meaning that jesus died a real and confirmed actual physical death but he didn't stay dead long enough for his body to decay the lord raised him from the dead on the third day and peter on the day of pentecost under inspiration of the holy spirit links the events of the resurrection of jesus to the prophecy in psalm 16 we'll look at that in more detail later when in that study the next one is isaiah chapter 25 verse 8 this is kind of a description not so much of the circumstances of the resurrection but what the resurrection would ultimately mean for all that later would come to believe in the messiah and that is isaiah wonderfully describes 700 years before jesus ever rose again from the dead that his resurrection would swallow up death forever. And of course, Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, takes that exact wording from Isaiah's prophecy and then applies that to the resurrection circumstances of the Lord Jesus. And then the final one, and I'll link to here one from the Old Testament, one from the Gospel of Matthew jonah chapter 1 verse 17 which is a type and we'll revisit it when we get to the types eventually jonah chapter 1 verse 17 the type is jonah the prophet is reluctant to follow and obey the lord's assignment to go to nineveh to proclaim the lord's message to them he tries to run and he runs down the opposite direction to the sea gets on a ship He's thrown overboard during a, a, great, uh, a great storm at sea. And when he's thrown overboard, what happens to Jonah? He's swallowed by the great fish, and he remains in the belly of the great fish how long? Three days. Three days. And Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, in a link that the Lord Jesus himself makes, and therefore it functions as a prophecy by the Lord Jesus of his own Death, burial, and resurrection circumstances before it actually happens, he links the circumstances of Jonah and says, That is the circumstance that will apply to the Son of Man. He will be raised the third day. And then Luke, later in Luke chapter 18, verse 33, confirms the truth and the fulfillment of that prophecy. All right, so again, I apologize for speeding through all of these, but we got through the list. I, I kept you over just a few minutes, but we're finished with that section. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be back in a couple of months for the next segment of this study, and we will tackle the what are called in theology the Christophanies, which are the Old Testament, Old Covenant appearances of Christ in the events of history. God bless you.